in that lyric, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. That is reality that we live for and a reality that we die for. Because even though we die, we shall live. And that's that's not just religious platitude. That is the reality we're talking about here at Green Community Church. That Jesus is our life. And we're going to get into that a little bit later this morning. But before uh, we do that, I want to dismiss Children for Children's Church. That's ages 4th and 1st grade. You can follow Mrs. Holty out the, the north door here. One other thing I, I want to share with you is the kids are leaving. You know, sometimes we just hear what God is doing in our small part of the kingdom. But I have the privilege to be um, on the advisory board at Minnesota Teen Challenge. That doesn't mean anything. It just means Tom Trzinski tells us what God is doing and, and we get to give some feedback. But something that's very cool that we've had an opportunity to, to participate in. You know, the women, there's going to be a women's center that's being built right now. And I get some of the insight into the finances that's going on there. So at the end of the year, they were all there but a million dollars. You know, just a million. And they thought they had this, this loan locked in, right? But that was, I mean, they had all the ducks in a row, I's dotted, T's crossed, and everything was set to go, and they were sure they were going to get this loan, and it didn't happen. And so to saying, okay, well, hey, we've got a, we've got six million for a seven million dollar project. What are we going to do? And again, just turning to the Lord and saying, Lord, how are you going to provide? Just long story short, very early in, uh, January, there was a million-dollar check in the mail from the corporate sponsor that paid for the rest of that facility to build. So I just praise God for his provision in that ministry and our opportunity to uh, participate in that. We're going to get to hear more about that on March 12th. But, you know, sometimes you don't hear about these things, and I just thought I'd share the good news so we can praise God for his provision for his people, for his kingdom. So. To today's message, I want to ask you, who are you? Who are you? What is your truest identity? Is it in your nationality? That you're an American? Or maybe it's, you know, kind of a slash. I'm a Scandinavian American. African-American, a Norwegian-American, or as in my house, you're just a stubborn German. Maybe it's in your political party. You're a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent. Maybe it's your occupation. You're a doctor, a nurse, a teacher, computer engineer, IT guy, bus driver. Is it in a skill or a hobby? You're a fisherman, a golfer. You're a crafty person. You're a Pinterest gal. You're a collector. Maybe it's in your favorite sports team. You're a Vikings fan, a Packers fan, a Twins fan. Maybe it's your social status. You're white collar or you're blue collar. 
you, you have a PhD or you just have a high school diploma. You're middle class, upper class, lower class. Maybe it's in your in marriage, your marital status. You're married or you're single, divorced, single parent. Or maybe it's, you know, in our faith. I'm a Christian. Or more specifically, I'm a Baptist or a Berean or more theologically, I'm a dispensationalist. Form. I could go on, we could talk about family status, you know, firstborn and lastborn, life stage, your personality, but who are you? Who are you? Who or what is the truest sense of your identity? And what does the world around you say that you lack in order to be your truest person? Who are you? And more importantly, whose are you? That's what we're going to be wrestling with. And that may sound very philosophical at this point of the game. But it is a very true question. And it has all sorts of implications about how we live out our lives and how we behave. So this is what we're going to be dealing with today in 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, please crack them open to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to pick it up at verse 17 as we continue here in our study through 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 17 all the way through verse 28. So Paul says, Nevertheless, each one of you should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's command is what counts. Each one of you should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain you if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was free, a free man when he was called, is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man is responsible to God. Excuse me, brothers, each man is responsible to God, should remain in the situation God had called him to. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. If a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Let me pray for us, then we'll go ahead and get into God's Word this morning. Lord, I thank you that you have reached down into each one of our lives and called us to yourself where we were. You've drawn us to yourself. And made us your sons and daughters. So we're grateful for that. 
And now as we live this life here on this earth, as we wait for your return, or for you to call us home, Lord, we want to be effective people. We're a church that says we want to be about pursuing you, God, and preparing people and proclaiming Christ. So, Lord, would you give us the grace to do that wherever you have us. Again, open our eyes to your word and what you have for us. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Lord Jesus, it's here in my praise things. Amen. So, again, we're in our study through 1 Corinthians. And again, we've talked about this is a church that's having a hard time getting out of the orbit of the culture it's around. And as of late, we've been talking about holy sexuality. That is submitting our sexuality unto God. Because that is a gift that should be holy unto Him. And he says it's only for the arena of marriage between one man and one woman. That sexual immorality is not proper for God's people. And in in marriage, to withhold yourself sexually from your spouse is not proper. Nor is it proper for a married for married believers to separate. Nor for a married believer to an unbeliever to leave their spouse just because of the faith that this to mirror reconciliation. Okay, so that's where we've been, and we're going to touch on that a little bit in, in this today. But really, at the outset of this whole letter, Paul is addressing this church that wants to adopt the world's values. The world's values of, of, of appearing wise, of appearing strong, if you will. And they were divided up amongst the leaders who thought they were going to lead them in this direction. But Paul says, look, my message to you was Christ and Him crucified. And it may not look very wise to this world. In fact, it, it's a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to the Greeks. But it's where life is really at. There were people who wanted to appear spiritual, especially as they wanted to exercise their spiritual gifts and show what they had. But this was more about recognizing what God was doing through His Holy Spirit in His body. As He would say in chapter 3, verse 6, Look, I planted Apollos water, but God is the one who gave the growth. So here, again, we're kind of returning to this train of thought about, you know, worldly thinking. And the question is, what do I lack now that I'm in Christ? Where am I deficient? And the and the it begs the question, is is Christ enough? Is Christ enough? So Paul breaks through what I call the big idea of this whole section of, of, of scripture. It's a call to remain as you were when you came to Christ. He says in verse 17, nevertheless each one of you should remain re, excuse me, retain the place in life that he, that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. You see, in coming to Christ, there's no need for a status change. And the encouragement is to remain as you are, to bloom where God has planted you. We're going to hear that phrase over and over today. I think there is an exception, though. I mean, just thinking logically. You know, if God calls you as a uh, as a criminal, you probably shouldn't continue in that. You can't be God's gangster or drug dealer or what have you, right? But as far as just everyday life, you know, 
just circumcise. You just can stay in that place. And he says, this is the rule that I lay down in all the churches. But as we're going to see through this, even, even this passage, it's not a hard and fast rule or law per se. In some instances, in fact, there's a, an encouragement to make a change. It's not always prohibited. But Paul gets very specific here. And he starts out, he instructs that there should be no change in what I call a religious status. Pick it up at verse 18. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not remain, he should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. Went all the way back to the father of faith, Abraham. That was going to be the sign that, that God had made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And more specifically, focused on Moses. That the circumcision was a sign of the covenant that I was, that a man or I guess in the family, a woman in the family, that family was going to follow the Old Testament law. That was how they're going to relate to God. That's how they're going to please God, if you will. And all the regulations and sacrifices and everything that it entails. Here's the problem. I don't know if you've had a chance to go through the Old Testament law. It's pretty involved. And it's pretty easy to break one of the commandments. In fact, Paul says that if you break one, you've broken the whole law. What do you do with that? People have tried to keep the law, but no one has really been able to do so. So we're kind of in a stuck place, right? Here's the standard. We can't do it. But an incredible thing has happened. God himself meets his own standard, met his own standard in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his life, living a life that did please God in keeping the law, in his death being the sacrifice that we needed for our own law-breaking and keeping and violating his law and sinning, and then his resurrection from rising from the dead in breaking the power of death. Salvation cannot be found in keeping the Old Testament law. It's found in Christ. And now salvation is available to all. Those who have been circumcised, those who have not been circumcised, to Jew and Gentile. And there's no longer a distinction between those who are circumcised and, and those who are uncircumcised. So someone who has found Christ, his Messiah, is no longer needing to be justified through the Old Testament law. Christ is the only one who is able to keep it, through a sinless life, to fulfill the law. And our faith is now in his life, his death, his resurrection, living by faith instead of seeking to keep the law. That's the gospel. That's the good news. We don't have to do it because Jesus didn't for us. We can't do it, but he could. So for the man who is circumcised, he no longer looked to keep the Old Testament law, Old Covenant law. Salvation is not found there. And he didn't need to try and remove the marks of circumcision and be uncircumcised. Now here's the thing. I'm thinking, how does that happen? Because that isn't physically possible. And in my research, there was a process, I guess, to make that happen. But I was advised by my wife to not get into that today. So, 
If you want to talk about that, I'll visit with you afterward. Don't have to share all my findings. But the man who was uncircumcised, he didn't need to be circumcised. It was not going to make you more spiritual. It was a shadow of things to come. It was not going to make you more pleasing to God. It was not going to add anything to your status before God because salvation, justification, sanctification is in Jesus Christ and nothing else. And I want to tell you, if any of you are in here in this room and you're trying to please God through your life, how you live it, trying to be good enough, bad news is you can't. I'm not here to offend you. I'm not here to say you're a bad person. But what I am here to say is that God's standard is perfection. And you can't meet it, nor can I. But he's met it in his son, Jesus Christ. And that is the good news. That is good news. But, you know, for this particular church, this church in Corinth, it's interesting that Paul brings this up because it really wasn't an issue for them, strangely. I mean, it's it's just something he met, it mentions in this list, but it really wasn't a, a problem. There was not division between those who were circumcised and those who were uncircumcised. So why is this here? Why does Paul bring this in here? But Here's something that's happening historically. Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians the same year he writes to a church in Galatia. Now, if you know anything about the Galatians, this is something they're wrestling with. Do I accept Christ in my heart and now I have to follow the law? Or is Christ enough? And Paul has to write a letter to them and say, look guys, no. You are not going to be justified before God by keeping the law. No, it's in Christ alone. And so perhaps this is fresh on Paul's mind. He's trying to maybe inoculate them just in case this, this heresy, this false teaching comes their way. Or maybe it's a standard operating procedure as this is still fresh in his mind. Remember, this is a huge paradigm shift in salvation history. This, this is, this is mind-blowing stuff. This is a new covenant. And so he will say in, in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, he says, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. It is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Jews and Gentiles are no longer separated. To go on in, in chapter 3, 28 of that letter and say, there's, no, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there's neither uh, male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And later on in chapter 6, verse 15, he says, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. So Paul's conclusion, back to our letter in 1 Corinthians, in verse 19. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's command is what counts. Now here's another quick rabbit trail. I can't fully develop this, but suppose the Jew says, well, yeah, I am keeping God's commands by being circumcised, right? 
I think what Paul was specifically talking about in this, as far as the command, had to do with the sexual immorality commands he gave just previously in chapter 6, verse 18, talking about they should flee sexual immorality, and then they should honor God with their bodies. And uh, I think that's what specifically Paul was talking about now that they're a new creation. But, you know, as I'm working through this, I'm, you know, pastor's always thinking, well, how does, how does the circumcision, uncircumcision thing apply to us today? Because it's, it's really not an issue, I think, today. I think most of us have kind of settled that issue biblically. But first of all, let me say this. If you have never put your faith in Christ, you will never be your truest self until you have. And I don't say that condescendingly. But I do say that evangelically. I mean, I want to give you the good news. That God has made a way for you to be reconciled to Him. To know Him fully. To be His child. And you will never know Him until you have put your faith in Him. Because Jesus Himself says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Apostle John will say in his letter that this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and that life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. I want to tell you that what the Scripture is teaching, that you won't have full life until you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. He came for you. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose from the dead for you. He offers life to you. Will you put your faith in Him? For the rest of us, though, who have already put our faith in Jesus, what's here for us? I'm trying to find a parallel. I don't know. Maybe it's we put our, our faith, our trust, and we think we need to be some behind some theological school or maybe some denominational school. But I think I think this is true, probably more specifically for all Christians. Sometimes when you come to faith, you say, is that all? Isn't there more? Can't I do more? And somehow to be fully, I guess, fulfilled in Christ, I need to do something for him. So somehow we think, well, I need to be leading a ministry or even for me to be fully mature in Christ, I need to go into full-time ministry. It's kind of our world's value of bigger is better. I need to get more involved. That's the sign of Christian maturity. It's not. It's not. Christ has planted you somewhere. And the fullness of Christ thereof, He wants you to be Jesus to the people who are in your workplace or in the marketplace, or the play place, wherever you are. If God is calling you into full-time ministry, that's great. But it's not the fullness of, of full-time ministry. Excuse me, the fullness of, of full maturity in Christ. Don't fall into the trap that bigger is always better, because it's not. Bloom where you were planted. Be faithful with what God has put before you. And if He has some other place for you to be, He'll make that way for you. But don't think that 
you need to do something for God now that you've come to Him. Yeah, you need to live for Him, but you don't need to have some huge full orb ministry. You just need to be faithful with where God has planted you. Well, let's go on, because Paul, next Paul addresses what I call changes in social status. He kind of repeats himself in verse 20. Each one of you should remain in the situation which he has in which when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although you can gain your freedom, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who, has, who was a slave when he was called to faith by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Now this can be really misunderstood and distasteful for us, especially since we're a nation that came out of a, a bad history of slavery, right? There's nothing good about American slavery, I don't think. In fact, some people say, well, see, the Bible is supporting slavery. No, the Bible doesn't support slavery. Paul's not supporting slavery. But the gospel has invaded a sinful world where slavery is there. And he's trying to bring redemption to it. And the truth of the matter is Corinth, as a Roman city, was probably one-third slaves, one-third emancipated slaves, and one-third freedmen. And so no doubt that some people had come to faith who were slaves. Now some slaves were treated well. They had access to education. They were afforded opportunities to make service connections uh, and service and make connections in society, which later on paid dividends for them. There was a man named Erastus in Romans chapter uh, 16, verse 23, who was the city kind of public works guy. And the, the, the thought is that he was actually someone who sold himself into slavery and then actually helped propel him forward uh, in, his, in his, I guess, social connections, and eventually he gained his citizenship and, and prominence. But you know what? That is the exception. That is the exception. Most people who were slaves were human chattel to take care of a household. For someone who says, you know, slavery wasn't so bad, it's kind of like a friend of mine. I, yeah, I'm going to tell you this story. So a guy friend of mine, a different ministry, different location time, but said to me one time, you know, what's the big deal about childbirth? I think women totally blow that out of proportion. It's, it's not as painful as it must as they make it out to be. And I just said, shut up. You have no idea what you're talking about. I think for someone who says that about slavery, has no idea what it's like to be a slave. To have no control of your body over the destination of, of what's happening. To be at society's bottom rung. And it's easy to be used and abused by the will of the master. And it's easy for these slaves who are at society's bottom rung, to feel like they were of lesser value. But Paul's message of encouragement here is, hey, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Don't let it trouble you. You know what? You may be a slave, but that's not how Christ values you. And a change in your social status will not give you any more spiritual status. You are more than what this world says you are. He goes on to say in verse 22, For he who was a slave when he was called to faith by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. You've been freed by Christ. 
Not to just serve an earthly master, but to serve Jesus himself. He says a few times in a few of the letters, but I just chose this out of Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart, and listen to this, and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, and it is the Lord Christ you are serving. I'm transported from just being somebody who is at the beck and call of some human master, now to someone who is Christ's freedman to serve him. However, Paul does not command that staying in this place is something he recommends forever. In fact, he says, look, if you have a chance to be free, do so. He says in verse 21, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. In verse 23, he says, do not become slaves of them. You don't have to be at the beck and call the whims and priorities of men. In contrast, though, in verse 22, he says, Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. It highlights the fact that no matter what freedoms you may enjoy in this life, Christ purchased you and freed you, not so we could do our own thing, but in order that we might serve him. He says, you are not your own. By the way, that's the second time he said this in this letter. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So he concludes this category in verse 24. He says, brothers, each man is responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. I want to, I want to take this back to the literal translation, kind of the word for word from the Greek, because this translation does a good job of talking about the responsibility of God, but there's something much more going on here in this verse. So the literal translation would be this. Each wherein that he was called, brothers, so wherever you were called to, in that, let him remain with God. Let me read that again. Each wherein that he was called, brothers, in that let him remain with God. So it denotes two truths here. Yes, number one, we are responsible to God wherever we are. But number two, and probably more importantly, I think this is what Paul was trying to get at. God himself is present and gives us grace to remain in that place that he has called us to. And it may be a place where we feel stuck or it's very difficult. But God says, no, I'll be with you. I'll be with you in that place. God himself is present and gives us grace to remain in that place where we feel stuck or it's very difficult. What's the application? Are you in a place where you feel stuck? 
And each one of us comes to that place somewhere along the line, right? Then serve the Lord. And it may be just be that stuck place that God uses to get you someplace else or to advance you. Here's the person I think of when I think about this. It's Joseph, son of Jacob. The 11th brother who gets sold into slavery. He's faithful in Potiphar's house. Falsely accused, he's sent to jail. He gets connections with people who have connections with royalty. Helps one of them out. He's forgotten for two or three years. But it's from that place that God raises from prison, God raises Joseph to become vice pharaoh. You see, if he just was faith, I mean, he was faithful that God was with him. But if he didn't move from the slavery house of Potiphar's house to the jailhouse, he probably never would have become vice pharaoh. He just would have been a real successful servant in Potiphar's house. Sometimes God puts us in a place of adversity where we feel stuck, and he says, I'll be with you. Be faithful. And I'll use it to get you to where I need you to be. And for those of us who enjoy great earthly freedom, here's the good news. You're Christ's slave. You're Christ's slave. Use the freedoms you enjoy to advance your master's cause, to advance his kingdom. You've been bought with a price, his precious blood. Leverage your freedom for his kingdom. Again, this message is not so much about who you are, but whose you are. You are the Lord's. If you put your faith in him. He wants to use you in any place that he puts you. Bloom where you're planted. The last area he addresses is what I call in the area of marital status. Verse 25. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord. But I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you of this. Now here's the truth, folks. I'm not going to fully unpack this today. Next week we're going to talk about God's call to singleness. And we'll, we'll spend much more time on this. But I am going to skim across a couple highlights here. First of all, Paul is very pragmatic. He says, look, I don't have a command of the Lord. But I'm giving you my best advice as one who's received his mercy. There is no spiritual advantage to being married or to being not married. So I'm going to give you some practical advice. Paul prefers singleness. And first of all, he points to, in verse 26, a present crisis. There's something going on in the, in the Roman Empire or in that region where it's making life difficult. It might be the, the famine that Agabus predicted in Romans, excuse me, in Acts chapter 11 verse 29. But here's the truth. Life can be hard. 
And it can be even more tough when you have to think about a spouse and children, right? Those are things that you need to take in consideration. Paul encourages the married to remain as such. And even the person that does get married, they haven't sinned. But if you are married, here's the problem. You are more concerned about stuff, right? And verse 28 says, But to those who marry, they will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you of this. Because I'm married, because I have three daughters, I have to take things into consideration, right? I can't go just traipsing off wherever I want to. I need to take care of that family, my wife, my children. And I'm concerned. I'm concerned about their provision. I'm concerned about their health. I'm concerned about their well-being, their spiritual state, their character. If any of my daughters would date a young man, Lord, give him mercy. But those are things that I'm concerned about as a married man, as a father. Again, Paul's big picture is to change from single to married does not make you more spiritually complete. In fact, getting married is more challenging. But here's the thing, and this is where I want to talk to you singles. Getting married will not make you more spiritually complete. Getting married will not make you more spiritually complete. And if you're looking for that, you have to be complete in Christ before you get married. Otherwise, you'll be looking for that person to bring completeness, and they cannot deliver. Only Jesus can deliver. So stepping back into the big picture, we're talking about a change in religious status or social status or or marital status. Those things may come your way. From a religious status point of view, God may raise you up to be part of an influential ministry. Maybe very significant. Social status, God may bring you possessions and position. And that's great. Marital status, God may bring you the spouse of your dreams, the man or woman of your dreams. But let me say, at the end of time, you won't be able to hold on to them. And they can be taken away from you. No, I found this true in my own life. Was the worship pastor at a church, 1,100 people, beloved. Two months later, I was a bus driver. There's nothing wrong with being a bus driver for little kids, but man, what I had was taken away from me. God showed me that ministry is a privilege, not a right. But ultimately, that my Identity wasn't in being a worship leader or a bus driver. It was in Jesus. It was in Jesus. All those things can be taken away from us. Our identity in Christ cannot. And that is what we need to know. We need to know that we are His and that He is ours. That needs to be our truest identity. It is who we are and whose we are. And that he will never leave us, nor forsake us, even in those hard and stuck places. He'll be with us. And because he is with us, that is a place where we can bloom where we are planted. 
even when it's difficult. And that's the message I, I hope that you take to heart today. That your truest identity is in Jesus. Whatever you're doing, whatever status you hold, or don't hold, and what you have is Jesus. He will never leave you alone to save you. Let me pray for us, and then I'd like to have the worship team come and close this place. So Lord Jesus, you come to each one of us at different parts in life. For some of us, you bring changes. For some of us, 